morning, good afternoon, good evening, or stream, good ready. This is Eagle Eyes on Tech. I'm Eagle Falcon. I have to start off by apologizing a little bit. After thinking about it for over a week, I do have to say I was a little too hard on Apple. I gave Apple a lot more flack than I should have for making the iPad Pro USB Type-C and marking the inevitable trend towards removing lightning altogether, including make it so that those who just bought a $1,000 plus phone are going to have their connectors changed in a year, obviously, anyway. Let's be honest, it's much better to use USB Type-C. The fact that Apple is embracing USB Type-C in the first place is miraculous. Because one thing they've always done is always had their own proprietary adapter. And the fact that they're switching to USB Type-C is actually a big plus. Because even though it means the end of the MagSafe, the end of Lightning, it does mean that the charger for your MacBook Pro would work on your iPad and eventually your phone. You'd only need to keep USB Type-C cables around. I mean, even now, when I pack up my bag to go to a convention or whatever, I'm carrying around a 240-watt Dell adapter in addition to a 60-watt Dell adapter, in addition to two external batteries, in addition to a lightning cable, in addition to a couple different micro-USB cables. I'm not going to lie, if all my stuff charged with USB Type-C, that'd be awesome. I know for my current setup it's impossible, because one of my laptops, the mobile workstation its power draw exceeds what USB Type-C can put out. But aside from that, I'd love to be able to do that. So, you know, I, I do withtract my, I do withdraw my statement a little bit regarding Apple's push to USB Type-C. It is a good move. I am glad to see it. I do think it is still a swift kick in the nuts to everyone who just bought an iPhone XR or an iPhone XS. No matter how you look at it, it is still a jerk move in that regard. Because all those people now, well, sorry, where your cable's going to be obsolete soon. Hope that's okay. Uh, let's actually move on to current stuff. This week was the war of the highest end CPUs being announced. We're not talking about the CPUs you average users use, or even the high-end enthusiast gamers use. We're talking about CPUs used to power everything else. The server CPUs. The workstation CPUs. The true, as powerful as possible, CPUs that power servers, workstations, supercomputers, those CPUs. Intel has announced the new Xeon platform, Cascade Lake, which will feature CPUs with up to, I want to make sure I have this right, 48 
cores that will offer 12 DDR4 memory channels per socket. But what does that mean? It means you can have up to 96 cores in a standard server. That's 192 threads. To put that in perspective, my current rack mount workstation I use to edit videos supports two sockets and currently because it's older only supports up to six CPU cores per socket so that's 12 cores 24 threads and on that sucker if I maxed it out I could theoretically have up to five videos rendering at a time before I start seeing some performance drop. Granted, my videos are not complicated. It's mostly just entering a watermark, uh, rendering a watermark in, and an intro and an outro. Nothing too complicated, admittedly. If I used these CPUs in something like that, I could have a team of editors all using that one workstation at the same time. That is nuts. No doubt about it. I mean, and on top of that, 12 memory channels currently most modern gaming systems are only dual channel they only use two out of their four ram sticks during one cycle granted you're having a lot of cycles but the more the more of your ram you can access at a time the faster everything works together the faster the cpu can use the ram and so on and so forth by using 12 12 it can do things so efficiently it's mind-blowing back to the to the example of my rack station that one only uses three memory channels per cpu and has six memory slots per socket this is four times the memory bandwidth before even calculating the fact that you're using higher bandwidth ECC memory, which has all sorts of features to make sure that nothing is stored incorrectly, and there's almost a near zero chance of any sort of memory corruption problem. Plus, of course, with systems like this, you also have constant checking of the RAM and if anything's detected that it could be a problem it says no we're not doing we're not using that stick but you know that's just the world of workhorse CPUs now you might be asking why who needs this much horsepower on one CPU And the answer is very simple. Big enterprise companies. Even content creators, if they got their hands on such a CPU, they could have just one of these CPUs in their system. And back to the whole video editing idea. Edit a video, have it rendering... And normally on a normal system, you'd just turn off the monitor and walk away, because it's going to take about an hour. With this many CPU cores, 
you could work on your next project and have this render in the background. And the sole reason Intel came up with this CPU is three letters. A M D. With the dawn of the Zen architecture from AMD, that brought forth Ryzen, which outperforms the Core i3, i5, i7, and even the i9 in productivity. Which dawned Threadripper, which actually, I take that back about the i9. The Threadripper is more targeted at the higher end i7s than the i9. Which then brought forth the epic AMD CPU. And epic takes on the Xeon. Now, Intel mocked Epic for saying that its architecture is just, oh, it's just glued on CPUs and we're a true processor and blah, blah, blah. They're not a real performance workhorse. That's just a bunch of cores glued on. Here's our solution with 48 cores. We're better than AMD, right? I mean, Intel can mock the architecture of Epic all they want, but the thing is, is that the Ryzen architecture, which is what Epic is based on, scores better in productivity tasks than Intel. And the fact that the Epic system could go up to 32 cores is exactly why Intel decided... We need to make a CPU with 48 cores to outperform AMD. So naturally you think, oh, well, AMD's been the top dog for a long time. They've had this answer sitting in their back pocket, and there they are. They're the top dog again, right? Wrong. Because soon after, AMD revealed Epic Roam server processors, the next generation of the Epic CPU. Which, yes, shows off more of their quote unquote CPUs glued together on a chip. But here's the beauty of it. The actual processing cores themselves that are glued on the chip are 7 nanometers, so they're much more efficient. Whereas the control system, the big die in the middle of the processor, is on the old 14 nanometer chip that talks to all of the glued on CPU cores. So it means that this sort of design... Although, according to AMD, uh, according to Intel, is unsophisticated and just barely working together, it means they can just go, hey, buddy, guess what? 64 cores. And then drop the mic. We, of course, don't have benchmarks yet of this, but let's be honest. Intel can mock AMD and their, and their CPU style all they want. It doesn't change the fact that AMD is outperforming them in the, in the high-end system market. And to top it off, this quote-unquote unsophisticated CPU architecture has more PCI Express lanes than the Intel Xeons. You're talking how many lanes? I believe it's 128 PCI Express lanes. That's insane! 
that is more PCI Express lanes than graphic cards you could possibly fit into a normal system. And you might be thinking then, well, what's the point then? Storage. One of the big pushes right now in these high-end systems is how quickly the system can access storage. Using platforms like NVMe, I think that's the right acronym, the M2 form factor, all of these use PCI Express lanes. So in a server where you pop in two epics, epic CPUs, you know you're rocking 128 cores, which is crazy in the first place. But on top of that, you have 256 PCI Express lanes. You can dedicate two of those lanes to freaking 100 solid-state drive-based drives. And you've suddenly got a storage server that can just bring up terabytes upon terabytes of information in the blink of an eye. I'm not going to lie. I am so happy to see AMD back to challenging Intel, to being able to to compete with Intel for these high-end products. Because far too long, Intel's just been going, okay, here, bam, there's eight cores, have fun. Now just one or two years later, we're pushing 64 cores on one CPU at the absolute highest end. That's madness. That is absolute madness. Now, for those of us in the gaming world, that doesn't mean a whole lot, because, let's be honest, most of our games can still barely comprehend over four CPU cores. But it does mean, for those of us who are not in big data or in the enterprise market, that, you know, a whole lot of companies are looking at their 12-core high-end CAD workstation and going, huh, you're looking pretty old compared to that system over there that can run 128 cores. Let's get rid of you on the cheap to Joe Schmo over there so we can go get that super system. And that is one thing I can't wait for. I cannot wait to see all the big high-end systems that are now going to look super obsolete and how little we at the bottom end can pick them up for. Let's talk for a minute back on the whole Apple topic about their CPU core. So one thing we kind of glanced over, just because it's kind of hard to wrap your head around this sort of stuff, is the fact that the new iPad Pro, which has some pros and cons, is running a brand new Apple-built system on a chip, the A12X. This is featuring an 8-core CPU of unknown clock speed, a 7-core GPU, and a quote-unquote neural engine. But the one thing I did talk about, though, was the fact that, well, this neural and this whole system is faster than 92% of all portable PCs. 
This claim has bugged me. This claim has bugged me a lot. Because it's so generic. And anyone with a working brain would go, well, what did you compare it to? Can you give us some numbers other than 92%? So Ars Technica sat down with them, with uh, Phil Schiller, and wanted to discuss about this chip. Because, you know, like anyone with a working brain would ask, why do you claim this thing is faster than 92% of all PCs? The only quote we got was, Apple's new iPad Pro sports several new features of Note, including the most drastic aesthetic redesign in years, Face ID, new pencil features, and a very welcome move to USB-C. But the star of the show is the new A12X system on a chip. That doesn't tell us anything! Eight-core CPU, whoop-dee-doo! Tons of phones run eight-core CPUs. Guess what? My dual-core Windows 10 system from flipping six years ago can still outperform them. Seven-core GPU. How many cores are currently in... Oh, I don't know. My... Mobile workstation laptop? Hundreds? The neural engine. What does it do? Well, the neural engine allows to read the face of people and comprehend the voice language of blah, 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 blah. Is there anything else? Because I hate to break it to you. I've got a depth sensing camera. It's right here. It doesn't need a neural engine to function. I'm sorry, but to anyone with a working brain, and I want to stress that enough, the claim that this is faster than 92% of all portable PCs demands proof. The only people who are going to believe this are the Apple fanboys who want to believe this, who want to regurgitate that line. And they're just going to keep repeating it, saying that, oh, it doesn't matter. More than likely, my iPad's faster than your laptop. Prove it. Because I'm willing to bet You actually put it head-to-head with a lot of laptops, you're going to find a lot of laptops that fall into that 8%. And before anyone starts going down the rabbit hole of, oh, that's just Apple, they've always been like that. No. They haven't. That is what's so infuriating about this. And I hate bringing up, quote-unquote, old-school Apple whenever there's a discussion about what Apple, what modern-day Apple is doing. But when Apple was throw, showing off, say, oh, I don't know, the Power Mac G5, they gave live demonstrations against the top of the line products from Dell, from HP, from IBM, and actually made very compelling arguments 
for why their Power Mac G5 was better than a than a Pentium 4 powered precision desktop or a Xeon powered IBM Z Pro or an HP XW series and granted I know this all stopped once they switched to Intel and they were using the exact same CPUs as the others Part of me would argue then, well, hey, you control the software. Surely you can squeeze a little bit more out of that CPU, right? Once again, you, if you want to prove that you're better than 92% of other systems... Prove it. It's that simple. Alright, let's shift gears dramatically and go back to more talks out of AMD. AMD has now revealed a new graphic card. Finally, hallelujah. And better yet, it's not the RX 590. The 590, if you need a reminder, is the CPU that everyone was, or the GPU, the CPU, the GPU everyone was hyped about, saying, oh, there's going to be a new 590, oh god, it's going to be so much better and faster, and it'll finally take on NVIDIA, and all it was was another freaking refresh, the third refresh, I might add, of AMD's old Polaris architecture, which is now four years old. And yes, they do have more modern systems than Polaris. You know, like Vega. Yeah. In fact, Radeon Instinct, which is their new product they announced, the Instinct MI60 and MI50, is in fact Vega-based. Finally! And even better yet, these new systems can communicate with each other and be used for high-end applications. Oh, fantastic! They are not built for gaming. (sighs) Brand new cards. And they are... There's first off a couple of things that annoy me about them. One, they are going to be compatible with the new PCI Express 4.0 as opposed to 3.0. They are going to use HBM2 ECC memory. This means that the RAM will be built onto the GPU die itself and no longer require a memory controller, which is good. Honestly, that sort of design is much more efficient. In fact, that 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 offers up to one terabytes per second of memory bandwidth. Featuring up to 32 gigabytes of this kind of memory. Up to 64 compute units containing... 4,096 stream processing cores on it. These are some monstrous GPUs. In addition, they're using some new technology to connect with each other. You can connect up to four of these. But again, the problem is that these are designed for Rendering, supercomputers, cloud computing. They're intended for very high-end applications. (sighs) Now... 
I don't know what this means, to be perfectly honest. Because Barney would say this is really bad. But at the same time, NVIDIA kind of made the same move. We kept hearing about Volta GPUs, Volta GPUs, Volta GPUs. And the only time Volta GPUs were ever released out of NVIDIA, it was in a very similar market. Volta only ever released as a Tesla card, which is in direct competition with the new Radeon Instinct, or as Quadro cards, which are only seen in workstations and high-end video editing systems. But I thought the RTX cards were Volta. Nope, they're Turing-based. An architecture we didn't even know about until the RTX cards were announced. So, does that mean we're ever going to see these GPUs as gaming cards? I don't know. It's quite possible, like Volta, these will just end up being only professional grade cards and never, ever see the light of day as gaming cards. It's quite possible that we see Radeon Instinct. I don't know what they'd call it, but we'll pretend maybe we'll see them as gaming cards. Maybe we'll see something completely different down the road. I will say this much. The graphics side of AMD is a mess. If you were to ask me right now what kind of GPU to buy if you wanted a game, AMD would not cross my mind at all. The AMD cars are just not competitive. At anything but the low end. And you might be thinking, what about the Vega 56, the Vega 64s? They exist. They do, but they're not competitive. They are way too expensive for the performance you pay. I Honestly, I would recommend getting... Getting a GTX 1070 or a 1080. Heck, right now, the GTX 1080 is easily the best priced performance out there. I mean, on the CPU side, AMD is pushing Intel so hard... That we are getting insane, underline insane CPUs. But on the GPU side, NVIDIA owns just about everything. And no one else matters. I'm hoping the Radeon team has something coming up. Alright, let's shift gears drastically. Well, not too drastically. I mean, we're, we are still going to talk about another company that is screwing up. Fallout 76 has released a... brand new patch... To help solve all of its bug problems. All the bug problems are going to be fixed with this one miracle patch. And that miracle patch is... Removing the ability to adjust your frame rate cap or your field of vision. Oh, 
<laughs> Why, Bethesda? Why are you Bethesda-ing so hard? Oh my god. I don't think I have ever seen... Bethesda, Bethesda it up this badly. I mean... (laughs) All he did! All they did! Was, instead of actually going through and actually trying to fix the problem, and actually... Try to do something so that the game is not as exploitable as it is. All they did was make the game less customizable. So here's what that does. By locking out the frame rate and locking out the field of vision, that means the normal players who don't want to exploit the game cannot adjust their client, so that they have the best experience for their system. But, if you are someone who is intending on exploiting the game, if you are intending to be malicious, how long do you think it's going to take them to figure out how to bypass that lock? Anyone want to take a guess? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone want to take a guess? No one? I'm guessing less than 24 hours. I'm willing to bet already on a Reddit thread somewhere or on a 4chan board somewhere. They have already figured out how to remove this lock. I guarantee it. This is a patch that is going to last all of zero seconds. This is the equivalent of putting a band-aid onto your sinking boat. And before I get the flood of emails saying, Oh, Eagle, you're so crazy. You're just going ahead. And forgetting all about how Bethesda will always be Bethesda. And nothing will ever change that. (sighs) Okay, fine. Bethesda will be Bethesda. But then why make Fallout 76, which they said would not be an MMO, why make it an MMO? This is a shame. Fallout 76 was a game I was looking forward to. I was looking forward to streaming this game. I was looking forward to bring viewers in into my own little world. We could all work together like it was a modern Minecraft world. Build up however we want and just casually launch nukes at each other and just have a grand old time. But here we are. It's an MMO. That means we got to deal with every other person. Who just wants to ruin the fun? We gotta deal with every other troll in existence. I've never seen such a big... Okay, yes, I have seen such a big letdown. I forgot that No Man's Sky existed. Oh. Alright, let's shift gears drastically. Oh, wait. No, we're not feeling... We're not shifting gears drastically. Let's talk about someone who's screwing up even more than Bethesda. You see, Bethesda's mess up, at least, that's just because they love their own engine, and their own engine is a mess. They're kind of a victim of their own coding. Battlefield Five, on the other hand from EA 
I... Who thought this was a good idea? So, if you went and pre-ordered Battlefield 5, you will be able to play the game on November 15th, no, on November 20th, I think. So here's how, here's basically, here's, here's what blows my mind. If you pre-order Battlefield 5, there's actually a decent chance you cannot play Battlefield 5 on opening day. Opening day, by the way, is November 9th, which was this past Friday. Opening day, you could only play if you are part of Origin Access Premier, Origin Access Basic, or part of the 10-hour trial on Xbox One with EA Access. Oh, by the way, um, Origin Access Premier lets you play the game first, Origin Access Basic only lets you access a 10-hour trial. If you're on PS4, on the other hand, you get access to nothing on November 9th. On November 15th, everyone who bought the Deluxe Edition can play. And then on November 20th, anyone who bought the Standard Edition can play. And if you pre-ordered either of these, that means on November 9th, you are SOL unless you paid for Origin Access Premiere. So, saying all that, here's my question to you guys. When was opening day? When was launch day? Because EA wants me to believe that November 9th is launch day, but it's not. That is a load of crap. That is such... Why? Why would you do this? Just put it out there. Make it available. Freaking... Let everyone play your game. Even from a business standpoint, this is mind-blowingly stupid. Because I want you to imagine this. Imagine if during that 11-day gap between November 9th and November 20th, it was found out that your game was bad. That your handful of Origin Access Premier members found out the game was terrible. Any sort of hype you would have had on launch day is gone! Vanished! Poof! Evaporated! But no, instead you do this... I, I just... I, and I think, like, the biggest kick in the teeth in all of this is that paying for Origin Access Basic only gives you a 10-hour trial. What? Why? Why would you do that? Honestly... I feel like the Battlefield community needs to learn something from the Diablo community. Whether you think 
that Diablo Immortal, the mobile game that Blizzard announced last weekend, was a good or bad idea. The Diablo community made one thing perfectly clear to the entire world. That Diablo Immortal was not okay. Fans of Battlefield. Fans of first-person shooters in general. If you want this sort of nonsense to stop. Because this is nonsense. No game ever should have this type of structure. The only way you could justify this is on maybe an MMO. Where everyone has to connect to a server and always be connected and always interact with other players to play. That is the only way you could pretend to justify this sort of nonsense. Any other genre? No. Say no to terrible, confusing, mind-blowingly stupid launch cycles like this. It's nonsense like this. That's why I don't buy EA games. Because every time EA finds some way to flip off its user base. And also they brutally murdered Command and Conquer and that that still hurts inside. And also, every time I tried registering my name, they kept registering Eagle Falcon as a swear word. So, there's that too. Uh, I, I, I need fun news. G- give me something fun. I, I need something amusing. Oh, hey, Samsung folding phones. Here we go. Alright, so... Why did I put my headphones on? I don't I don't even know. Samsung has officially revealed a concept device that shows they have made a smartphone tablet-like device that folds in half into a normal phone form factor. Now, as I said on the early bird briefing earlier this week, they did it in a darkly lit room. You couldn't see much of the construction, but what you could see was the screen on the outside being very bright, very crystal clear, and the screen on the inside when unfolded looking very much like a small tablet, and most importantly... There is no crease in the middle. There is no bezel in the middle of the screen. It is all one screen. I've been kind of shrugging off the whole folded phone thing. It's just like, oh boy, here we go again. I'm not gonna lie. Actually, seen actually seen it now. Actually, seen it be real. The concept is actually very intriguing, and I can't wait to see the finished product. In addition, Google is work. Or I'm Google. Samsung is working with Google, so that within Android there is natural support. For this kind of device. So that it'll be built natively into Android. Which is even better news. The last thing we really wanted is 
this sort of device having all sorts of compatibility issues and just not being able to work very well at all. But to see it go from, say, a phone form factor to unfold it and it actually shows like a tablet-style UI, and that's going to be on the Android level rather than some Samsung over-the-top nonsense... That is good news. In addition, Samsung is working on what they're calling the One UI that will be launching with the next form of Android. And that's supposed to be coming out this upcoming July. This new One UI is supposed to bring better support to these folding devices. And hopefully, I'm hoping... That it also means that the Samsung UI is going to be more efficient. Because right now, that TouchWiz UI that Samsung currently uses on their phones, oof. I mean, there's a reason that Samsung phones have a metric ton of RAM. And it's TouchWiz, without a doubt. On top of all that... Samsung is also looking at what they plan on doing for notched phones. Including a small U-notch, a small V-notch, a little O-notch in the corner, and most importantly, the No-notch. They did confirm they are working on a screen that will have the camera under the OLED screen. So that it will be a front of the phone that is all screen. No bezel on the bottom, no bezel on the top, no bezels on the side. Just all screen with no notch. So, Apple fanboys, I got a question for you. What kind of innovation has Apple done recently? Because I'm pretty sure between... no a, be- a bezel-less, notchless phone with a camera hidden under the screen... And foldable screen? I think Samsung beats out Apple's innovation of starting the notch cancer that has spread to what seems like every phone in all of existence. Oh god. Am I becoming a Samsung fanboy? I'll have to rethink my life after this. Let's move on, though. All right. I've been talking about this for a bit. About how Windows 10 has been showing signs of just suddenly deactivating on people. Well, there's a new wave of it now that came out with a recent Windows update. Surprise! Happy Windows 10 Deactivation Day! Yay! So yeah, random Windows 10 devices are in fact deactivating, but it seems to only be Windows 10 Pro systems. Which, once again, Microsoft, what was the advantage of having a Windows 10 Pro system again? I'm asking. For me, not even for a friend. For me, what was th- what was the advantage? Because so far, the only advantage seems to be more deactivations. Microsoft has already released a statement saying that if your computer has done this, do not 
buy a new system ID. You have nothing to worry about. Just make sure you update your system as they are working on a patch that will be, which will be rolling out soon. So, you know, just, just wait. Because as we all know, your system will update for you. Despite the fact that you went and spent the extra money to get Windows 10 Pro for the, for the privilege of not being forced to install updates and still being forced to install updates anyway, whether you like it or not. No, I am never going to let that go. That still pisses me off. I need to think happy thoughts. Let's think happy thoughts. Oh, I, here's a happy thought for you. Uh, Seagate, in their mad scientist lab, has come up with a roadmap where they believe they can create a... a I'm not lying when I say this. This is not a word mix-up, what I'm about to say. They are working on... A 100 terabyte drive that could be out by 2025. Seven years in the future, granted, but... You thought there might have been a chance that physical hard drives were dying and going to be replaced by solid-state drives. Seagate begs to differ. 100 terabytes. What? That is absolute madness. I actually kind of wonder what's going to be the read write speed on that. Rabbit Amoeba in the chat asks, where's, where's his, where's his petabyte drive? 100 terabytes is insufficient. Keep in mind. I mean, this is mostly going to be used for enterprise grade. Who, who are we kidding? The average user is never going to fill 100 terabytes. Though at the size games are increasing, uh, Maybe. Just imagine this. One of the 48 drive storage raids that are commonly used in enterprises. 48 100 terabyte drives in there. Two drives, of course, in that array being used for redundancy. 4.6 petabytes of data. I actually wonder will magnetic tape keep up? I mean, believe it or not, tape drives are still used in big data operations for cold storage. But there are about I want to say 20 terabytes per cassette cartridge. Will they be able to keep up? Or will hard or will hard drives actually finally kill tape? That'll be an interesting thing to look at down the road. All right, in completely random news, Apple doesn't expect to have a 5G iPhone until about 2020. The big problem being that the 5G modem chips are unfortunately running too hot. So they don't expect to come up with a solution to cool that until further down the road. Thank you, phone, for interrupting me. In completely other news, Amazon plans on having free shipping for everyone during the holiday season. 
dropping the $25 minimum price price amount. So, hey, that's good news, I guess. There's that. Nintendo officially brought out the YouTube app to the Switch. My my thing here is from an older article that said that you, the Switch might get it. It is confirmed the Switch does have the YouTube app. In fact, I went and tested it. You have to make sure your system is completely up to date on your Switch. And you have to go to the Nintendo App Store, type in YouTube, and it's a free download. It's actually a pretty decent app. And also for the fact that the Switch has front-facing speakers, makes it actually a pretty good experience, not going to lie. And also, because the Switch has this crazy foreign object called a headphone jack, I, I don't know. I, I think it's an archaic technology from back in 2009? I, I don't know. But because of that, you can just plug in any headphones you want. The only downside with YouTube for the Switch is it is not compatible with a Chromecast. So you can't just bring up a YouTube video on your Switch and just sling it over to your TV. You've got to then bring up the same same video on your phone and then sling it over if you want to do that. Uh, the other problem I had with with my, granted, 10 minutes of testing is that um, the controls for it use the L and R shoulder button to advance videos. And these buttons, because they're, because they're curved so far down the, the controllers, are actually really sensitive. And quite a few times, just listening to a music video, it would, I would accidentally bump the right shoulder. And in the middle of jamming out, it skips to the next one. And then it's like, oh. But I liked listening to Rivers in a Desert. So, some good, some bad. Overall, I'm glad to see that this Nintendo tablet device has more features that make it closer to being a tablet. I would still love to see this thing get a browser. I don't know when that's going to happen, if ever. Alright. Let's move on to the last burb, the last story of this day, the strangest story of the day. And that is LG making self-driving shopping carts. What? (laughs) Now, granted, these self-driving shopping carts are only being used currently in Korea. South Korea, obviously. But... But why? Who woke up in the morning and said, oh man, I hate the fact that my shopping cart doesn't steer itself. There's got to be a better way. And here it is. They're basically really tall Roombas. I mean, that's what they look like. (laughs) They're just like a column of... Robot with a basket in it. And one of the coolest features about this thing is the fact that if you on the screen tell it to go look for a specific item, the shopping cart will just take off on its own to where that item is in the store. (sighs) What sort of... Insanity will they think up of next. And Mini Lego Man in the chat does ask, when are they going to put Twitch on the Switch? The answer is, it is not on the Switch yet, and I have heard nothing about Twitch on the Switch. I would love to see that as well, especially since, you know, this is currently my only tablet 
and the fact that it has front-firing speakers is a huge, underlying huge bonus that the Switch has over literally every other tablet in existence. Once again, I really, really, really hope there is more coming out for the Switch. So, that's going to do it for this episode of Eagle Eyes on Tech. Please also check out my daily podcast, The Early Burb Briefing, which you can find wherever you found this podcast. We are all across the internet. And also make sure to check out my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash eaglefalcon, where we stream weekdays. Take care. See you next time. Although, now that you think about it, Rabbit in the chat did bring up a good point. The fact that the cart knows where everything is, is great, but how long would it be until the shopping cart starts directing you towards better choices? How long until the shopping cart starts forcing you to eat the ice cream? <laughs>